0: For everyone else uh, who hasn't been here in a while, or maybe it's your first time, I want to catch you up real quick. This is our Biblical Basis Sunday Night Studies, where I walk us through different topics of the Bible, and since February, the topic has been the Bible itself. We've called this Understanding the Bible, and here's what I've been seeking to do, okay? Here's what I've sought to do since the very beginning. Some of you could recite this back to me at this point, but repetition is good for us. I've sought to answer five main questions that all of us, if we care about the scriptures, have. And here's the five. What is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? And how should we read the Bible? And we've taken six weeks to answer each one of those questions. So we've already plowed through what is the Bible And we've plowed through the origins of how we got the Bible. And our last section, I think, was everyone's favorite so far. What is the message of the Bible? We looked at the gospel in the view, a telescopic view, and a periscopic view, and a microscopic view. And we walked all the way from Genesis to Revelation and talked about the unfolding message of God's revelation of himself to man. And now we are in the fourth section. Why can we trust the Bible? And we're in our fourth unit. Now, here's where we've been up to this point. Each week, I've been trying to take a different area for us to bank our faith on the authority and the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. A couple of weeks ago, I made a logical argument for what's called biblical inerrancy, which means that the Bible is free with any mixture of error. It's also infallible. It's not capable of erring because it comes directly from the mouth of God. So we used a logical reason. All right, Then we did a historical reason, how there's the, the Scriptures are historically reliable. And then last week, we had a scientific reason. We talked about archaeology and geology and all these areas of science that not only do not refute the Scriptures, but support the Scriptures, that science is on our side. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about biblical prophecy. And you could spend an entire six to eight weeks probably on prophecy alone, and we're going to hit the high notes here in just one night. I know this is a topic that some people love and They hold near and dear to their hearts. I'm going to say that uh, there's more Scripture references in this study than in any one I've done so far. I've counted over 50, and I've tried my best. Miss Sarah, you'll have to hold me accountable. I guarantee you there are typos in this because I spent a lot more time looking at chapters and verses than I did grammar. So a nice, clean, updated version will most likely be on our website at some point this week if if you've been keeping the notes for this study. But we're in Section 4, Unit 4.4, and the title of our unit is Finding Proof in the Fulfillment Of prophecy. This is one of the ways that we can know the Bible is trustworthy. Again, we've said that the Bible was written over the course of more than 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors on three different continents in three different original languages. Most of these men never met each other. Many of these men never read what the other men had written. They were all inspired of the Holy Spirit and they. Through the the, the speaking of God, through his prophets and apostles, we see these predictions of things that are going to happen, and then we see the fulfillment of how they came to be. And it's just amazing the prophecies that are made and the prophecies that are fulfilled uniquely in the Bible that take place in no other book. They take place in no other book. So let's look right at our, our listening guide here as we move to point one. Promises made and promises kept. Promises made and promises kept. And by the way, you'll notice on your listening guide, all the blanks have been filled in for you tonight. Instead of stopping for each blank, we're going to plow right through because there's a ton of scripture to get through. So I've already kept, the blanks are already filled in. Typically they're blank, but today they're all filled in for you. And uh, I just want to draw your attention to the first words underlined there, fulfilled prophecy. I want us to think of prophecy as this, the promises of God to his people. Promises made, okay, the Old Testament is filled with these promises that God makes as he reveals himself to the world through a person and then a nation and then through his son. And he makes these promises to us in a covenant relationship with us. We'll talk about that covenant here more as we walk through this. But He's a God who makes big promises, and as we see through the Scriptures, He fulfills those big promises in a way that only God could. Over and over, there are things that happen that only God could possibly have done. He's done them in such a way that, A, the text could not be manipulated to try to show some false fulfillment. And B, it could not be manipulated by someone like Jesus who tried to live out the fulfillment. That's one of the arguments of people who don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They say that he tries with his effort to fulfill prophecy, but there's things that he does that only God can accomplish. So, you know, throughout the scriptures, you see some here in point one, Isaiah 41, 26 through 29. If, we, if you were to read that passage, it talks about God specifically challenging us to look at the promises of all other religions and to see, does anyone make the promises that he makes, and does anyone fulfill those promises the way that he does? He makes a bold statement as he speaks to the prophet Isaiah. And then we're reminded by Moses in the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9, we'll remember these words, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He makes promises and he stands by his promises. So the following list that we're going to walk through, it's not exhaustive, okay? There are a lot of prophecies I'm not going to cover. There's probably some big ones that I'm going to miss out on, but we're going to kind of hit the high notes, starting with Genesis and walking our way through. And, And as we move to number two, I know we've talked an awful lot about this passage. I don't think it can be repeated enough. Number two, the seed of our salvation. All right, Genesis 3.15, if there's one thing I hope that you've gotten, for those of you that have been faithful to come to this study, that passage of Scripture is the hinge by which the rest of the Bible swings back and forth. If we don't get Genesis 3.15, we miss the boat on everything else. All right, Genesis 3.15 says this. Basically, God is proclaiming what he's going to do, and he's speaking to Satan the serpent who has slithered his way into the garden. He says, I will put enmity, meaning hatred, between you and the woman... Between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know later on, of course, that that seed of the woman is Jesus Christ and the bruising of his heel is the crucifixion, but the crushing and the bruising of ser- the serpent's head is the, is the resurrection. Everything rises and falls on that promise, that gospel call in Genesis 3.15. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Imagine that you're Jewish This is how most of them would have interpreted Scripture as they were living it out, okay? You hear this promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of a woman, that means a man, a Messiah, in human form will come and deliver the people of God. And so they're waiting for this Messiah to come. And as you read all the stories that follow after Genesis, you say, okay, as the nation of Israel is starting to come to formation, they're waiting and looking and seeing and wondering of these people who are coming, are in fact the promise of Genesis 3.15. And we see over and over that they're not because these people fall short of a Messiah. We see Moses. Could he be the seed? Well, not exactly. All right, he cracks a rock one too many times and's kept out of a promised land. All right, then we, we think, well, could it be this person or could it be that person? And we, I mean, you start if you really want to start at the beginning, you can start with Cain and Abel. And go all the way through. And each and every single time you will see, although there are types and shadows of Christ, people who point to the possibility of a Messiah, all of them fall short because none of them are fully God and fully man the way Jesus Christ is. So Genesis 3.15 is that first gospel call. It's that first prophecy that God is going to bring redemption to his people and he's going to do it through the seed of a woman. We've got to get Genesis 3.15 down because the rest of the Bible will not make sense if we don't know this one passage. So that moves us on to point three, blessed to be a blessing. All right, so now we know that God says through the seed of a woman will come the Messiah, the Messiah, This person will come and redeem mankind from their sins, so how's this Messiah going to come into the world? Well, God decides to choose a man, and through that man establish a nation, okay? The man was Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, and the nation is the nation of Israel. And don't miss the passage here, okay? The passage here is uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now this is the key. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's the key. If you read portions of the old testament in isolation you may think that god is in the business of playing favorites you may think that right god's supposed to love the whole world that's what we're told as christians on the other side of the cross yet in the old testament we read that god chooses a specific nation and calls that nation unto himself as his holy set apart people now if that was the whole story then we would we would wonder does god really play favorites But the key is, God did not bless the nation of Israel simply to bless a nation and play favorites. It was through Israel that the Messiah would come. And it's through Israel that he was going to bless the rest of the world. Abram and Israel were blessed to be a blessing. I love that phrase. In fact, I had a missions professor at seminary, Dr. Robinson, who uh, that was his signature on his email. So every time we would email each other a lot when I was in the registrar's office. So five or six times a day across my email would say, blessed to be a blessing, Dr. Robinson. And it's just a reminder that the blessings that we receive, you know, even on this side of the cross, the blessings that we receive, although we enjoy them, are meant to be a blessing to others as well. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, financially speaking, that when God increases our standard of living, it's so that we can increase our standard of giving. God doesn't play favorites, all right? It is his desire for the world to know him. It is his desire for the world to know him. So it's the, this prophecy that we see in Genesis 12 where Abram is going to have these descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and that through these descendants, a, a nation's going to be established. And through this nation, the whole world is going to be blessed. Now, how does that unfold? Well, we see the... Uh, you know, and let me say before we move on to point four, there's echoes of this, even in the New Testament. The one specific story that I cite here is in John chapter four, as Jesus is at the well, Jacob's well with a Samaritan woman. And he says these words, salvation is from the Jews. He's basically telling her, "You, you don't quite understand here. Okay. Salvation comes from the Jews. It was this nation, which he was establishing his plan of redemption. All right, so even Jesus himself is confirming that Israel is blessed, but to be a blessing to others. So that moves us on to to point four, and this one entitled, A Banishment to Babylon. So one thing we see about Israel through the Old Testament, they're a lot like we are. They got good days and bad days. They got a whole lot of good and a whole lot of not so good, all mixed up in one. And what happens is we see the rise and the fall and the rise and the fall. In fact, I've often seen this diagram in the book of Judges before kings were established in the nation of Israel. There's this repeated cycle that takes place over and over and over again where the nation of Israel is disobedient. They fall into persecution. They cry out. God delivers them with the Redeemer. They get restored to good fortune. And then once again, it happens all over. All right, they're blessed. They're disobedient, persecuted. They cry out. They're blessed again. And over and over and over it goes. And God is amazing in his abundant love, in his grace, and his mercy. But God does tell the Israelites, you're called to be a holy nation, set apart as a witness to the rest of the world. And if you will not repent of your sins, then I'm going to hand you over to your sworn enemies. And he warned them over and over and over again. Of course there's two major exiles in the old testament one is not talked about a whole lot okay it's the exile that took place in the northern kingdom 10 of the 12 tribes were, were exiled out to assyria but the one that we really focus on specifically in the book of jeremiah and in parts of daniel we talk about the babylonian exile that took place in the southern kingdom in judah and over and over and over again here's what happens God is saying, turn back to me, turn back to me, turn back to me. If you will not turn back to me, I have no choice but to hand you over to your sworn enemies because of your disobedience. And he predicts it, and it happens. All right? In Jeremiah 25, 8 through 9, he basically said that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in. He's going to burn this place down to the ground and take his favorite things with him to Babylon. And we see in 2 in, uh, in King, in Kings, there's a two missing there, 2 Kings 25, uh, 5 through 7 that the destruction and exile took place as Jeremiah had predicted. And finally, Lamentations chapter 2, verse 17, we see the result of all this. In the book of Lamentations, I believe Jeremiah is the author. It's not stated, but it's implied that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. He's lamenting all the things that have happened to his home, that they would not turn back. And here's what he says. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. That is fulfilled prophecy. That is God saying, if you don't turn back, this is what I'm going to do to you and your nation. And then he does it, and Jeremiah laments over it. He weeps over it for his people, knowing it was going to happen, witnessing that it did happen, and then crying over what had happened and hoping that God would one day restore. And by the way, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is what I call the famous coffee mug verse. It's one of those verses that'll land on the coffee mugs of many Christians. You know, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you hope in a future. Well, what's the context of that? Okay, the context of that passage is they're out in a seventy year exile in Babylon, and most of them will never see the promise the promised land. They'll never see their home again. Their children and their children's children will come back at the time of Nehemiah and rebuild the temple. So, I mean, let's cling to the promises of God, but let's remember the context of these things. When we say we know what plans God has for us, and our life doesn't go the way we think, and we think God's given up on us, just remember this. God did not give up on the Israelites either, all right? He told them he had a wonderful plan for their life, and they went into a 70-year prison sentence. But he still wasn't giving up on them. He had an ultimate plan to bring them back and to to restore the kingdom, and that's exactly what he did. God is not slow in fulfilling his promises, although it seems that way to us on this side of heaven. So that moves us on to number five, the rise and fall of rulers. Now, I would imagine, for those that love prophecy, you've probably spent a little bit of time in the book of Daniel. In fact, I remember several years ago when Pastor Casey was leading us through the study of Revelation uh, that we could not help but make cross-reference after cross-reference with the book of Daniel because there are so many... Uh, references to the apocalypse and so many references to end times that take place within Daniel. I could mention so many different things, but I'm just going to mention a few quick things. All right. In the second chapter of Daniel, here's what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he needs somebody to interpret it. And so in the second chapter of Daniel, he interprets the dream and he basically sees that in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, the symbol is going to be these four kingdoms and the four kingdoms that history finally fleshes out are Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, these prophecies were made hundreds of years before some of these kingdoms came to fruition. In fact, if you read on in Daniel chapter 11, it's amazing that it gives this vivid prophecy of this one ruler who would eventually be, be split in four, and it's, it's a perfect... Uh, pointing to Alexander the Great who had no heir and eventually after his death, four generals took over his particular kingdom in Greece. In fact, scholars say that if you read the book of Daniel in just chapter 11, you could find 135 measurable prophecies that have been fulfilled in literal historical events. One chapter of Scripture fulfilled in history. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. I did not read through all 135 of them, but I trust the scholars who did. I spent a lot of time on point seven, you'll see in a minute. But uh, the rise and fall of rulers was predicted hundreds of years before it all took place. And we do see that he predicts there's going to be the rising and falling of these kingdoms. I'm sure that King Nebuchadnezzar, before God had his way with him, thought that he had a kingdom that would never perish. But like every other ruler that's come before or since, there's only one king that will reign, and that's King Jesus. That's another kingdom that rose and fell. So that moves us on to point number six, new terms of a new covenant. So here's what happens. All right, so we go back to the beginning. Genesis 3.15, God says, from the seed of the woman will come the Messiah. He decides that the Messiah is going to introduce himself to the world through a holy nation. He establishes the nation through Abraham. He establishes the covenant through the symbol of circumcision. And then he manages the covenant through the laws of Moses, handed down first at Sinai with the first Ten Commandments, and then the law obviously added on to after that. So you have the, the covenant, the covenant sign, and the covenant law. And this is how God is governing his people. But yet, even in the Old Testament, we hear echoes, a, prof, a prophecy that there's going to be a new covenant and a new way in which God will, will work with his people will commune with his people. And one of the most vivid echoes of that, we see again in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. Here's what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, God is making this prediction of a new covenant where the law is no longer going to be written on these cold stone tablets, but it's going to be written on the warm, beating hearts of men and women. And how does that take place? Well, we see a beautiful fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ through the church. And the sign of this new covenant we see in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20. We see the sign of this takes place at the Last Supper. It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now listen to verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood you know i've often talked behind this pulpit about my experiences as a catholic and there's not a whole lot of theology in my early years that i take with me now to be honest and uh, i certainly do not hold to the catholic view of communion okay if you don't know this uh i may be the only buddy in this room by the way brother greg you'll get a kick out of this i might be the only one in this room who has worshiped under every view of communion in christianity I was raised Catholic, and Catholics believe in what's called transubstantiation, which means that when the priest consecrates the elements of the bread and the wine, Catholics believe that it becomes the literal physical body and physical blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, as crazy as this sounds, my grandfather, who was one of the few Catholics that I do believe knew the Lord, even though his theology was a little upside down, he he used to sign up for what was called nocturnal adoration services. Listen to this. He used to, God bless my my grandfather who I think is with the Lord now and he's probably laughing about this now. But basically the Catholic Church when my grandfather was raising my father used to have a sign-up sheet. And for 24 straight hours after the priest would consecrate the bread which they believed became the physical body of Jesus, they would place the bread on the altar and people had to come in one-hour shifts and bow before the bread. So my dad growing up, had my, my, grand, my grandfather was a glutton for punishment. He'd sign up for the 3 a.m. shift. And so my father, my, my father growing up was like 7 years old, and my grandfather would wake him up and say, come on, we've got to go worship the bread. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, my, my father would be trying to stay awake, and he'd be bowing before this piece of bread on an altar, wondering what in the world he was doing. Well, that's transubstantiation. All right. When I became a Lutheran, after I got saved... Lutherans hold to a view called consubstantiation. Now, this is even crazier. All right, they believe that when the elements are blessed, the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but yet Jesus is physically present in the bread and physically present in the wine somehow. Crazy. So, again, the Catholics think it's literal body and blood of Jesus. Lutherans believe, well, no, it is bread and, blood, and wine, but Jesus is still in there somewhere. And then we have uh, the typical evangelical view is memorial meal, do this in remembrance of me. But during the time of the Reformation, there are some who also believe there's a real spiritual presence when we partake of the elements. And I do believe there's a sweetness of God's covenant people when we have communion, which is why I love it so much. But why am I bringing all this up? We, you know, obviously the words of almost every uh, Lord's table in every Baptist church I've ever seen have the words... Do this in remembrance of me, and certainly we do it. We proclaim the Lord's death till he returns. When we take the elements and we remember him, his body being broken for us, and we remember his blood being shed for us through the bread and through the wine. But don't miss this: that wine, for us, it's Welch's. Okay, all right, that that Welch's reminds us that God has established a new covenant. We can't forget this. We no longer live under the restrictions of the law. That law has been fulfilled through the righteousness and the perfect life of Jesus Christ, who imputed that righteousness to us, which means he gave us credit for his goodness through our faith. And so, yes, we do remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed, but we also remember when we drink that cup, that's the sign of a new covenant that God has set with us, and he'll be faithful to that covenant forever. So it's very important that we remember that. That was first prophesied way back in the book of Jeremiah and hundreds of years later as Jesus is breaking bread in the upper room with his disciples, we see that he's giving us the sign of this new covenant. All right? And that moves us on to point number seven. Now, this is not all of the messianic prophecies. Okay, number seven is putting together pieces of a messianic puzzle. Uh, <laughs> there are a, a lot a lot of prophecies. In fact, I'm going to tell you one of the things that really blessed me recently when I was doing some research. I don't know if you know this, but in recent years, there have been droves of, of Jews who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's ministries called Jews for Jesus where the reason they're coming to faith is because they keep seeing in Scripture over and over and over again how Jesus uniquely fulfills these prophecies of the Messiah. In fact, if you go on the Jews for Jesus website, I think they have like 40 different prophecies listed that are uniquely fulfilled in Christ. Some of those may be listed here. I kind of made this list on my own just kind of walking through Scripture and finding what I thought were some really unique characteristics. And instead of reading through all of those, obviously there's a tonne. Okay? I, I, I literally just walk through the areas of Christ's life from his birthplace, ministry as the suffering servant, wounded and bruised, compassion for his accusers, abandonment of his disciples, crucified among thieves, mocked by Roman soldiers, lots casted for his garments, forsaken by God, spirit committed to God, his unbroken bones, burial in a rich man's tomb, resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of God. I mean, this is just a small portion here's what i'm going to do with the few minutes that we have left i've read this before but i'm going to read portions of what i think are the most vivid portraits of old testament prophecy that have been uniquely fulfilled in jesus christ the two that i'm going to read are isaiah 53 and psalm 22 okay listen to isaiah 53 listen to this who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed verse 2 for he grew up before him like a young plant And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was a poor carpenter from Nazareth, right? Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And is one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Man, this all points to a crucifixion. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, there's just so many things throughout this passage that constantly point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this happening hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before his arrival. Isaiah 53, I mean, in that one passage, I could find maybe 15 passages in the Gospels that perfectly match this. All right, that's one of the two, what I would call um, giants of messianic prophecy. The other one, if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 22. Okay, turn to Psalm 22. Stop me if you've heard some of these words before as I read them. All right. Listen to the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Seems like I've heard that before. Why are you so, so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. All right. Think about Jesus as he's walking down the road to Golgotha holding the cross. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. I mean, let let me skip down here a little bit. Look, starting at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Two thieves on the cross, one on the left, one on the right. All right, I can count all my bones, They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Is that not what the soldiers in Rome were doing? Casting lots for his garments? But you, O Lord, do not be far off, for you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It goes on and on and on, but let's just look at a few things. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, Jesus repeats this messianic psalm. He repeats it on the cross. And then we see over and over at verse 16, a company of evildoers encircles me. That's the thief on the left and right. For they have pierced my hands and my feet. That screams crucifixion. I can count all my bones. He was dying of dehydration. They were poking his side and blood and then water comes out. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. This is what happens when the Roman soldiers are casting lots and mocking him while he's on the cross. I mean, this is one of the giant messianic psalms. And as Jesus is on the cross and he's repeating these things, you know what he's doing? Not only is he fulfilling prophecy, he's basically crying out to the people, take a good look at me. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that they're talking about here in Psalm 22. And that's what Jesus is doing. There are so many prophecies that uniquely point to Jesus Christ. I would urge you in your, in your quiet time, maybe take a look at a few of those things. For each one of those points, under, under point seven, you'll see the prophecy listed in the Old Testament and then a fulfillment in the New Testament. And that's not exhaustive. Some of those are, there's multiple times where God reveals the fulfillment of that prophecy. Of course, in the Gospels, there's multiple accounts. So that's not exhaustive by any stretch. But if you ever doubt, or you have a friend or a family member who constantly doubts... They have a tough time reconciling some of these things. Pull out the scriptures and say, this was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, yet he's repeating the same words. He's fulfilling the same promises. He's doing the exact same things that were prophesied, and there's no way that he could possibly have done it in his own strength. It has to be the will of God. That moves us on to our eighth and final point. I think as we bring this discussion to a close, we can lean on the words of the Baptist giant, Carl F.H. Henry, one of the great Baptist theologians who went to be with the Lord not too long ago. Here's what he says. There is only one real inevitability. It is necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. God is busy about keeping his promises and he will see his Bible come to fruition. In fact, I think about the baptism of Christ. I mean, think about this for a second. You're John the Baptist. And the Messiah who you've been prophesying about, you've been making this path for him to come. He finally comes and the first thing that he does is come up to you and say, "Baptize me, John." And John looks at him and says, "Whoa, wait a minute. I need baptism from you and yet you come to me." And Jesus said what did Jesus say? "It is important that we must fulfill all righteousness." Now, did Jesus need to be baptized? He had no sins. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all scripture. And that in being baptized, we would follow his example as we too are baptized. Now, we, we are baptized as a, an outward symbol of an inward change for the remission of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. But Jesus thought, thought it was important that the scriptures be uniquely fulfilled. He didn't take any shortcuts to do it. And as we see these things happen, it should strengthen our faith. There's no other book out there that was written over the course of almost two millennia with so many unique bold promises, and yet at the same time, so many promises that are uniquely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to it. So as we continue to make this case that you have a trustworthy Bible, now we have a logical reason, a historical reason, a scientific reason, and a prophetic reason. And, and, let me, and my final word before I ask Brother Greg to come forward is this. If you're struggling with the final promises that are made in Scripture if you're struggling with the promise and revelation of a second coming, if you're struggling with the promise of the new heavens and new earth and all that's been taken from you and all the pain that you've endured, that the promise that God is working for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, if you simply stay faithful, if you're struggling with the fact that God has not yet fulfilled that promise, look at how many other promises that He made and that He fulfilled. You know, I, again, I, I feel like I quote this movie every week, but one of the few bible movies that has been faithful to the scriptures was Jesus of Nazareth was was made in the 1970s and i remember this one scene i think this was an adaptation of scripture i don't think there's a passage for this in fact i know there's not there's a scene when jesus is a child and basically he's in the synagogue and he's learning the scriptures and outside the synagogue roman soldiers are pillaging the village and they're taking the food and they're they're destroying property and they and they're Flying off the handle. And a couple of the men from the synagogue come running out into the streets and one of them drops to his knees and screams out, how how much longer must we wait, God? How much longer must we wait for you to come, for you to come? And then then the camera pans at this this infant Jesus who just kind of stares out. And little did they know at the time that God had already been fulfilling that promise, that he had already come. And he had come, uh, born as a you know, into a poor carpenter's family from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem and raised in obscurity, that God was fulfilling his promise the whole time. We don't know when Christ is coming back. We don't know when we're going to be with him. If he's going to come here or we're going to go there first, we don't know. But if you're struggling right now with the goodness of God and his promises, take comfort in all the promises that God has made and the unique way in which he has fulfilled those promises. This is a Bible we can trust.